If you would turn with me, turn to Galatians chapter 2, book of Galatians, after 2 Corinthians, right before Ephesians. And uh, if you need a Bible, as always, there are some in the back on the little shelf to the left of the sound booth. Um, take one if you need it, keep it if you don't have one. And uh, if this is your first time here. My name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here. And uh, I always look forward to getting this time to step away from the singing microphone to strap on the old lapel microphone and uh, preach the word a little bit. Though, honestly, I'm sitting there singing these songs. And I knew what songs were coming, but as I'm singing, I'm like, I don't need to preach. They've just hit all my points. (laughs) And the songs. Which is a very good thing that songs can preach, and I'm grateful that we're a church that sings the word and declares truth in that way. So hopefully with that said, you're at Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, and before we get started, I just want to to read through that. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Bartimaeus, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they go to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. I've been absolutely just enjoying the, the study in Galatians. It's weird to say because like, I know it's a very heated book. It's a very heated letter. Uh, It probably shouldn't be all that enjoyable. Um, But it's kind of like Facebook comment rants where you see people and you just, I have to see how this goes. And then we just end up like this. I'm just here for the comments. You know what I mean? It's like the Galatians posted something that was mildly heretical or very heretical in this case. Or they shared something from like a heretical page and Paul's like, oh no. Anyone who preaches the gospel other than the gospel of which I preached to you, let them be accursed. And it's like, oh, I'm going to read this. What is going on? Seriously, though, this has been, it's a great study. It's a challenging study. It's a change of pace from where we were in First and Second Samuel. And uh, it's going to be, hopefully, both a challenge and an encouragement, or already has been, um, as we continue it. Paul's writing passionately in this letter. And he's writing passionately about something that we all should be very passionate about. The gospel of Christ Jesus. The gospel is a matter of first importance, as Paul expresses it in 1 Corinthians. And the message of that gospel, the only true gospel, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And faith and trust... In that perfect work alone is how we are saved. How we are justified, made right before God. It's not Christ plus anything else. It's 
faith in Christ alone. So when we say gospel, which I say a lot, that's what we mean. Trusting in Christ's finished and perfect work. The problem facing the churches in the Galatian region is that that gospel has been distorted. It's been distorted by these false teachers called Judaizers who wanted to take the true gospel and add law to it. So now it's Christ plus law. That's what we call legalism. They wanted to specifically add the practice of circumcision. A fun topic we get to talk about today. We'll get into that in a little bit. So the gospel changes from trust in Christ to trust in Christ and be circumcised in order to be accepted, in order to be justified by God. So Paul wastes no time in his letter speaking of this practice, saying, if anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's honestly a polite way of saying it. What Paul meant was, let them be damned. That's fun. But that's the severity of what Paul is talking about. They're taking a matter of of second importance now and raising it up to a matter of first importance. They're elevating it to that status. It's what we call heretical. It's to be rejected. Paul's not rejected because it's just something he doesn't like. He's like, "Mm, mm, no, not my cup of tea. I'd rather have this gospel. No, Paul's saying that because it's not the gospel that he had revealed to him. By who? By Jesus. I'd say that's a pretty firm foundation to stand on. So after Paul gives the consequences of proclaiming a distorted gospel, he provides an autobiography of sorts to show that the gospel he's preaching is correct and he has authority to preach it. Because the validity of his message was called into question and his reputation was called into question by these Judaizers. They were saying Paul was the second-hand apostle. He, his, what he was preaching, this was not uh, substantial like the other apostles preached. He was this rogue guy kind of going off and doing his own thing. So Paul makes a defense for his authority as a true apostle of Christ, who is called by God's grace by the very risen Christ. The same Christ who the other apostles walked with and learned from while he was on this earth. Paul's authority stands because Christ gave it to him. Acts 26 tells us, And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is preaching the gospel given by Christ with the authority given by Christ. He needs no other basis. But to make the case even more compelling, like if that's not enough, he demonstrates to them even further that the Judaizers are the ones preaching this gospel falsely, not him. And he continues this autobiographical section and describes his time with the other apostles. Peter, or as he calls them here, and as Paul calls them often, Cephas, that's Peter, James, and John. And that's our text that we just read this morning. That's what we're going to be looking at. And what I hope we'll see this morning, to put it briefly and succinctly, is how the true gospel of Christ frees us from the burden of works-based salvation and unites believers on mission. That's kind of the bird's-eye view. The true gospel of Christ frees us from the burden of works-based salvation and unites believers on mission. And we'll flesh that out in these sections that I have up there on the screen. Verses 1 through 3, the gospel's message, it's affirmed and it's applied. The spies' slavery, discerned and denied. And the apostles' mission, distinct and unified. So that's how we're going to 
navigate through these ten verses this morning. Hopefully it will be a, a fun ride for all. We'll see what happens. But the gospel message affirmed and applied. Paul begins this section with, with a timestamp. Then, after 14 years. So we're kind of coming in the middle of a story where Paul has already given his testimony of how he was called and when he went up to Jerusalem the first time. Then he says, then after 14 years. The question is, when, what 14-year period is he talking about? Is he thinking 14 years from the first time I went to Jerusalem? Or is it 14 years since his conversion, where the story starts? That's the question. And either answer to the question doesn't change at all the message of what Paul is saying. But if you care to hear where I lean, I lean towards it being 14 years from Paul's conversion. I don't really feel a need to flesh that out much more, uh, because like I said, it doesn't affect what he's saying. It doesn't affect the importance of the gospel he's preaching. But to give us an idea of the timestamp, I'm coming from the perspective that it's 14 years since he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus and was converted. Either way, he goes up to Jerusalem. He brings with him two companions, Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas, if you remember, uh, was in the book of Acts. He was Paul's partner in ministry. Uh, His name meant son of encouragement, which was a good balance for Paul. Um who's very straight to the point. Uh, Barnabas was a believer already when we, when we meet him in Acts. He's familiar with the other apostles. He sells some of his land to help towards the mission of the gospel. And he's actually the one who brings Paul to the other apostles the first time. He says, you should listen to him. Just give him a chance. I know you're worried he might literally have you all killed, but just listen to him. Barnabas was born a Jew, was a Levite, and that's Cliff Notes' version who Barnabas is. That's one companion. The other companion is someone named Titus, probably someone who's converted as a result of Paul's ministry. He's mentioned multiple times in Paul's letters. He even has a a book of the Bible, a letter that Paul wrote to him. The name of it is Titus, if you were curious as to which book. I know that's mind-blowing. Titus was not Jewish. Titus was a Gentile believer. And that's an important fact, because that comes into play. So we have Barnabas, Jewish, in heritage, Christ follower now. Titus, Gentile, in heritage, Christ follower. Now they're with Paul, and he goes up to Jerusalem with them. Because of a revelation. Now we saw earlier that Paul received the gospel he was preaching from a revelation of Christ. From Christ. We know he was converted because of a revelation from Christ. And now he's on the move because of revelation. Demonstrating, in this case, he's, he's, he is not going about his own thing, doing his own thing but he's following the calling of God. So he goes to Jerusalem. And he sets before those who seem influential the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles. So who are these people that seem to be so influential? This is a phrase we see Paul using three times in this passage. And it's referring to a certain group of people, specifically Peter, James, and John. And at first, it really seems as Paul is mentioning them like this because he's kind of brushing them off. Like those who seem to be influential. La-di-da. But his sarcasm here, I don't think, as, as I did at first reading, I don't think it's so much directed at the other apostles. It's about them. He's referring to them. But it's really directed towards these false teachers, these Judaizers. Because they were the ones insinuating that Paul's gospel was a second-rate gospel. It didn't hold any weight. 
He was doing his own thing. The other apostles and, and the false teachers, they were getting it right. The other apostles would side with them. And they were the influential ones. Paul was nobody. So he's writing, and he's using this sarcasm not to belittle the other apostles, but referring to them sarcastically as they've been referred to by the Judaizers. So when Paul calls them those who seem influential, it's not a jab at them. It's more of an insinuation and referring to how the rumors have been spread about him from the Judaizers. Why does Paul present his gospel to them? Goes up to Jerusalem, presents the gospel to them. Why? In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, Paul says. So then was Paul seeking their approval to make sure that he had the gospel right? Was he making sure that what Christ revealed to him and called him to do was correct? I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think he's going to, to make sure that he is approved by their test as much as he's making sure they aren't going to undermine the gospel ministry that he's been commissioned to do. More or less testing them. Paul's confident in the gospel. We just spent two paragraphs looking at his confidence in the gospel. It was revealed to him by Christ. But if the other apostles were endorsing and, and doing what the Judaizers were saying, he's running in vain because everything he does is going to be undermined by this other current of you need Christ plus this. Christ plus law. So he's not running in vain because, oh my goodness, all this time I had it wrong. That's really bad. 14 years. It's a lot of false teaching. No, he's looking to make sure that they are also preaching grace. Because if he preaches grace and they push works, then there's going to be problems. Hence, Titus. Titus was the test case. What the apostles would desire to have done to Titus would determine, really, if they were in step with the gospel or not. And when I say done to him, circumcision. This was the core issue with the Judaizers. They wanted two C's. They wanted Christ and circumcision. So why is this, why is this an issue? Why is this such a big deal? This is something we would not give two thoughts to today. Not one thought. I don't think about it much at all. But circumcision was important back then. It's a different time. It's a different culture. Circumcision was a major part of this Jewish culture of which Christ was Jewish. Christianity is birthed out of this. It's the same God. So circumcision was the identifying physical mark for Israel and all who, who followed the God of Israel. It was the defining piece of Jewish culture as God had intended it to be. This goes back to Genesis 17. God establishes His covenant with Abraham. Really, 15, 16, 17. But Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep My covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is My covenant which you shall keep between Me and you and your offspring after you, that every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This is where we're introduced to it. It was very intentional. It's not like God had all these options written out on dice, and he's like, oh, we'll see what the mark will be. Circumcision. And Abraham's, roll again! That's not, that's not how it was. God had a purpose for such a permanent marking. Back in 2011-2012, we went through the book of Genesis. We studied it, exposited it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as we studied this, Pastor Lou put it this way, saying circumcision had at least three purposes. One, 
It perpetuated the memory of the covenant, what we just read. Here's the covenant I'm making. You'll keep it. The mark that you're going to keep it is circumcision. Two, it, it consecrated and distinguished the seed offspring of Abraham from the Gentiles in preparation for the coming of the promised seed of offspring, Jesus the Messiah. And three, cutting away of the foreskin was to symbolize the putting away of sin and a reminder to walk in moral purity. It was purposeful. It was meaningful. Something important to remember and keep in mind is that um, Abraham was required to be circumcised after Abraham's belief, which was counted to him as righteousness, comes after. Abraham was justified not by the circumcision, but by faith. Paul makes a huge case for this in the book of Romans. Circumcision follows true belief and faith. So all who wanted to be a part of that covenant family, they believe, they have faith, but they need to become circumcised. That was the mark of the covenant. That was the requirement under the law. Which is why it's so important to these Judaizers. You can almost almost see where they're coming from because this has been so important to them forever. But that was under the Abrahamic covenant. That was under the Mosaic law. That was prior to the new covenant purchased in Jesus' blood. The keeping of the Mosaic law was no longer a must-do because Jesus kept it on our behalf. He fulfilled it. So the requirement for salvation in Christ was just to put your faith and trust in His finished work. And the mark we receive is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The one who would remind us of moral purity is the Holy Spirit. So coming to Christ didn't mean becoming Jewish. It meant following Jesus. Following Jesus didn't mean you had to assimilate into Jewish culture. It meant you needed to follow Jesus in whatever culture you were in. Therefore, meaning that circumcision was no longer a must. So Paul's standing there. He's got Titus with him. What are we going to do with this guy? The old Gentile rascal. (laughs) Believes in Christ. He's trusted him. He's following him. Peter, James, John, what are we going to do? And the answer to that question would show their hand. Does he need to follow Jesus plus the law of Moses to be justified? And we see it. And not even Titus, who was with me, was forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. They were on the same page. They didn't force it. They affirmed the gospel Paul had been preaching, and they rightly applied it. Paul says, this is what I'm preaching, Christ alone? Yes. Okay, so what do we do with him? We don't have to do it. Okay, no circumcision. If the Gospels were justified by faith in Christ alone, then we cannot and should not require anything in addition to that, period. The truth applied reveals itself in Titus not having to be circumcised. And Titus never rejoiced harder. (laughs) But the problem in Jerusalem then is the same problem Paul's encountering with the churches in Galatia as he's writing this letter. And he tells them, Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, that they might bring us into slavery. So, let's look at their, their slavery, discerned and denied. Here's something we don't want to be called. We don't want to be called false brothers and sisters. We don't want that. That's a bad title. It's not a good thing. These false brothers were wolves in sheep's clothing. They're crafty. And Paul uses this tactical military language as he describes their behavior. They're slipping into spy to commit religious espionage. They looked the part. They acted like believers in Christ. But when push come to shove, they preached a different gospel. And they were coming to spy out what these churches were. 
to spy out our freedom, as Paul says, that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. So I think we have to answer two questions. What does freedom in Christ look like? And what is the slavery Paul's talking about? Freedom in Christ. We'll start, start with the good. Also good news, sun's coming out. Love that. All right, freedom in Christ. The freedom in Christ is what Paul and the apostles just demonstrated with Titus. There's one gospel, and belief in that gospel is how you're justified and brought uh, in right standing with God. And the freedom is that you don't have to look Jewish in order to walk in newness of life. That doesn't mean you get your, uh, your ticket punched and you're free from hell and you live any old way you want. That's not what freedom in Christ is. Freedom, the freedom that Paul is talking about is not a moral freedom in the sense that we'll just live however we want. Who cares? Grace, right? Just do what I want. But the freedom Paul's talking about is a, is a cultural ceremonial freedom. Keeping those, those uh, keeping of the laws and obedience to God's command flow out of the salvation. It's freedom. I've come to Christ, I've been transformed, and now I want to obey. None of those ceremonial laws are necessary for my salvation because Christ fulfilled them. So we have a freedom. And what's slavery? Slavery is, as we've, we've mentioned this before, it's tossing the law and Moses on top of the gospel, making that the requirement. So it's bringing secondary issues, tertiary issues, up to the level of matters of first importance and heaping that burden on, that slavery. The keeping of the laws and obedience to God's commands means salvation. The difference between the two. You're free to obey. You have to obey. Even if you look at the Ten Commandments, Israel didn't have to keep them as the entry fee to be God's people. God declared them as His people, and as such, here's the Ten Commandments. They're already His people. There's a motive difference between freedom and slavery. Freedom is, as we've said many times, I am loved by God, I am His in Christ, I am accepted, therefore, I obey. Slavery is, I need to obey, I need to do all these things, I need to keep all these laws to gain God's acceptance and His love. And the false brothers are spying out their freedom to bring them into that slavery. And Paul and the other apostles, they discern this happening within the church and they deny it. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We didn't yield to the demands even a little bit, Galatians. Why? So that you would experience the freedom in the true gospel. Not one second were we going to entertain these false brothers. That gospel would be preserved for you, Galatians, and any other community in which we preach. Never ever will we affirm the gospel and the law as the means of justification. And he does it for the Galatian church, and he does it for us today that we experience that grace. That we know the true gospel. Anyone who teaches Christ plus works as the means of justification should be rejected, denied. Another way for us to look at this matter of freedom versus slavery is what's permissible versus what's mandated. The late R.C. Sproul phrased it, may versus must. For something to be permissible, uh, you may do it. It's allowed. It's not banned. It's not sinful. In fact, it might be good. We'll keep on the topic of circumcision. A good example of this is Timothy. We talked about Titus. Let's talk a little bit about Timothy. We meet him in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 15, there's this whole Jerusalem council that talks about this entire issue 
of do believers need to be circumcised? And long story short, they come to the conclusion, no. Hence, here we are today. So, no, they don't need to be circumcised. Okay, great. Acts chapter 16, they meet up with this guy named Timothy in the region of Derby and Lystra. His father's a Greek, his mother's Jewish. He was not circumcised. He's in a community with ministry opportunities to Jewish people. These Jewish people knew his father was a Greek. And if you're an uncircumcised Gentile, or in his case, part Jewish, part Gentile, you're not getting a speaking engagement at the synagogue. They wanted that ability. So what do they do? They have Timothy circumcised. So wait, how is this different from everything that the Galatians are encountering? How is this different than what the false brothers were pushing? And why is Titus not circumcised and Timothy is? Timothy's decision to be circumcised was not an issue of justification. It was an, it was an issue of mission. How can we reach these people? How can we get in to spread the good news of the gospel? Timothy wants to do it. To do it, you've got to be circumcised. That's freedom in Christ. It's not just another law of, now you can't be. That's just the same thing as slavery. Just, you just flipped it on its head. There's a freedom. He was saved. He was a brother in the law. He was a Christian. He got circumcised. He was being, as Paul phrases it, all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Titus's mission, not to reach... Jewish people in synagogues, not circumcised. Timothy mission, let's reach some Jewish people in synagogues, got circumcised. Both equally justified in Christ. That's freedom. The Judaizers were not preaching freedom, but slavery. If they were there in Derby and Lystra, they would have demanded Timothy's circumcision up front as is a justifying act. He's not truly in the club because he has not marked himself with circumcision. That's slavery. That's Christ plus works. Freedom in Christ means we can take good things, choose to do them, not to do them. Slavery means we take those things, make them a matter of first importance, and we require them to be done. That's not the gospel. We reject that. Paul and the other apostles, they rejected that. They discerned their message... They discerned the false brother's message, denied it. Didn't give in to him for a second. Again, Titus very happy that they did not. The gospel frees us from the burden of works-based salvation. And we'll see as we head to our last section that the gospel unites us on mission with other believers. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. Here's the phrase again. It was saw in verse 2. Those who seemed influential. And Paul adds a little aside here. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. And what he's saying is their stature in the church, their time spent with Christ on earth, that didn't make a difference. In the sense that God isn't more partial to them than to him because of when they spent their time with Jesus. The Jerusalem apostles didn't hold a superiority. God calls who he calls, he uses who he uses, and he shows no partiality in the process. He's not saying this to belittle them, but again to emphasize the point of his authority and the falsehood of the Judaizers. That the OG apostles, as the kids might say, were not any better than Paul who came after. God shows no partiality. Those who seemed influential added nothing to me, Paul says. They didn't add to the gospel message. They didn't add any more validity to who he was. He had his authority. It was given to him by Christ. They added nothing to him. But they did add something to the mission of God. 
And when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul isn't playing for the B team. He's not on the practice squad. He had been entrusted with the gospel just as, that is in the same way, not a different way, not a substandard way, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. God worked through Peter for ministry to the Jewish people and worked through Paul to the Gentiles. That wasn't like exclusive. Peter obviously ministered to Gentiles. We see Cornelius in Acts. And Paul definitely got thrown out of his share of synagogues. But their primary mission was Peter to the circumcised, Paul to the uncircumcised. The same gospel, one gospel, delivered to two distinct groups. There's a distinction in the mission, but unity in the gospel. There's a distinction in the mission, but unity in the message. And in this unity, we see James and Cephas and John, these pillars, extend to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Right hand. So why is Paul now calling them pillars? I thought they were those who seemed influential. Now they're pillars. Paul's taking this moment to to emphasize, to recognize their place in ministry. He's kind of done telling off the Judaizers for this section. He's recognizing their place in ministry. He's, He's made his point. His authority comes from Christ. He's on equal footing. And now he's recognizing their position as being foundational to the church as I think pillars are a great illustration to it. Christ is their foundation. No question, the gospel is that solid rock on which we stand. But these men, they are pillars. They are strong support as the church is being built on that foundation. They're instrumental in the ministry as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're pillars. They are necessary They're structurally important to God's plan. It's a mutual recognition. He looks at them, he recognizes their importance, and they look at him and they perceive the grace of God in him. They saw and experienced in their time with Paul that God's grace was upon him, that he was changed, that he was different. They saw his heart for the lost, his care for the message of Christ's redemption. There's a mutual recognition. They're pillars, and they perceive the grace that was in him, and they offer the right hand of fellowship. This isn't just like a parting handshake. Like, Paul, always a pleasure. Good to see you. See you next time, buddy. Like, that's not what it is. The right hand of fellowship was their way of affirming a partnership in the ministry, a bond between brothers in the faith. They were on the same page. They were going to be united as they sought to fulfill what Christ had commissioned them to do. It's a beautiful picture. It's a gospel partnership. You see us when we bring people in the membership here at the church. We offer the right hand of fellowship. Why? Because membership here is more than just, all right, well, now you can vote. Congrats. No, it's a partnership together. We're in community together. We're in covenant together for the cause of the gospel. We offer the right hand of fellowship. There's unity in that. And I don't want to confuse unity and uniformity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. See, the glue that holds the apostles together, these apostles, Paul, Peter, James, John, is the gospel. That's the glue. The unwavering, unchanging gospel of Christ, that, that matter of first importance, that's what keeps them on track wherever they minister, whether to Jewish people or Gentiles. We'll see next week how the gospel is to keep us on track 
Paul deals with Peter in the gospel. Um, Pastor Lou mentioned a few weeks ago that we can have different views on secondary issues. So the gospel doesn't change, but secondary issues might. Baptism, believers, babies. Sprinkle, full immersion. Communion, real bread, cracker, matzah. Grape juice, wine, both. We can differ on these issues, but we remain in unity because of our bond in the gospel, because of the foundation on which we are basing it off of, the matter of first importance. If the gospel itself doesn't change, then we can present it in different ways to different people. Again, not a different gospel. And we have unity. Different people, but we remain united. Paul to the Gentiles... His ministry is going to look different than Peter's ministry to the Jews. We are involved in a, uh, a ministry partnership with LCN, local, or Liberty Church Network. And in that, we meet monthly with pastors from around the region. And uh, we do it with the intention of talking about what it looks like to, to make disciples and how we do that. But we are made up of pastors from a bunch of different areas. I mean, we're all in the capital region, but we're here in Glenmont, Selkirk, Ravina. And then we got a few pastors ministering up in the hill towns, which we know is a different world um, all together. I know because I grew up there. And, yeah. They, they probably have five feet of snow, and we got partial sun on the occasion. Um, but they're up in the hill towns, in the country. And we got another pastor who's uh, in like the middle of Scotia, in that area. And we're all gathering together. I think we got guys from other areas around here too, depending on who's there. But we have all of us doing the same gospel ministry. But how, how the guys up in the hill towns do ministry is going to look different than the way we do it here. And how we do it here is going to probably look different than the way they, they do it there. And that's okay. Because we're united on the gospel. That's the foundation. We're united, but we're distinct in how we do that ministry. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, nor should it. We also see the twofold call to gospel ministry. Declaring the gospel, which is what we've just been really heavy on, the message, getting the message right, and demonstrating the gospel. Declaring with Words is declaring Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Demonstrating is our actions as a result of being transformed by the gospel. And I bring that up because we have verse 10. Paul ends with saying, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Given the whole context of everything that's happened, this this great triumph and win for the gospel, and Titus not having to be circumcised, They didn't yield to the false brothers. They've done all this. There's ministry partnership. It's like, yeah. Paul, and don't forget the poor. Okay, I won't. But what is he referring to? What what poor? The poor in general? Just like we're partners in ministry, we got the gospel right, and don't forget the poor. Or is there a specific group that they're referring to? I do believe they're referring to a specific group of the poor. Of course, I'll put this in, of course Paul would want to care for as many poor and needy everywhere as possible as we should. But in the context of this letter, I believe these apostles in Jerusalem are referring to a specific set of people in need. See, when we first looked at this passage, I said I believe the 14 years mentioned meant 14 years after Paul's conversion. Now, given that timetable, that would place this interaction with the apostles around the time of Acts chapter 11. Because in Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas, they go up to Jerusalem because there's a great famine occurring. And they go to bring relief to the brothers and sisters up in Judea. So I believe all this interaction with Titus and the false brothers happened on this relief visit. You know how things go. You go someplace for one purpose and then something else comes up. He had Titus with him. He was with the apostles. Let's talk about this because this is what's going on. 
And then they get into it. Does Titus need to be circumcised? But the reason they went up was for the famine relief. So they go through all that, and what I believe was by God's providence. And when Paul, Barnabas, and Titus are ready to head back to their mission, these pillars ask them, just don't forget the poor here. It's rough. Many of the Gentile people that Paul would be ministering to are probably pretty wealthy, pretty well off, more so than those in Jerusalem. He could have a real impact of helping those poor. And Paul doesn't do it begrudgingly. He doesn't say, fine, all right, I'll remember the poor. He says, it's the very thing I was eager to do. That's why he went in the first place, to care for the poor, to provide relief in a time of need. As he departs, he's eager to remember and care for those in need. It's not a box check. There's no huffing and puffing. He was eager to do it. The gospel should embolden us for mission, but also give us compassion for those in need. We declare the truth, and we demonstrate and demonstrate the gospel in loving action. That's why we collect food for the Venture Church's food pantry. That's why we serve at the Venture Church's food pantry. That's why we collect clothing for the Capital City Rescue Mission. We serve at the Capital City Rescue Mission. That's why we've gotten plugged into Care Portal. That's why we take a monthly benevolent offering. We want to care for people and help those in need. Demonstrating it. And when I say we, I don't just mean the pastor elders. I mean, we, we the church, we want to do this together. We are to declare and demonstrate the gospel. We're a diverse mix of people from all different areas, backgrounds. We have opportunities in our social circles that maybe someone else in this building doesn't. We're all very different. So we need to ask ourselves, where do I have the opportunity to declare and demonstrate the gospel? in my home, at my job, in my social circles? How can I show people the grace of God that has changed me? How do we do that? Would people be able to perceive the grace of God in us? We're united in the gospel. I'm talking about us as the church family. We're united, but we all have very different places we can go to declare and demonstrate it. It may seem to us as we gather together there's not a lost world out there, outside the doors, but there very much is. People are being fed false gospels, being fed the lie that we just need to be good enough, we just got to try hard enough. But the true gospel alone is what offers freedom from the burden of working our fingers to the bone trying to earn God's favor. And that same gospel unites us as brother and sisters in Christ to live on mission, to declare the truth of what Paul's so passionately about in this letter. To declare and demonstrate the love of Christ to lost people. So I just want to wrap up with this thought. Christ pursued us when we were in complete rebellion to him when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, when we were poor and needy, Christ came down from his throne in heaven to live among his creation. To live out and fulfill all that the law of God required perfectly because we could not. And even in doing that, he still bore the weight of our sin on the cross so that we would not. And on the cross, before Jesus Christ gave up his spirit, he says these words, he says, it is finished. Complete, final, done. The work is done. The battle's won. On the third day, he stood alive in victory because it's finished. There is freedom from the burden of works, salvation, because it is finished. There's no more to add. Christ has done it. It's the gospel, when we put our faith and trust in that finished work of Christ alone, we receive salvation, justification, new life, adoption. We receive amazing blessings in that. But our confidence is in Christ's finished work alone. So you might be here this morning, you're feeling the weight and the guilt of not measuring up. 
You're trying hard. You're striving to please God. You're really trying to do it. But you just can't. There's too much. There's a burden. You're trying to do, do, do. Surrender to Christ. Rest in His finished work on your behalf. Trust in Him. Receive newness of life. If you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Christ, that He is Lord, He is Savior, make today the day. If you want to know what that looks like, if, if I'm speaking gibberish up here and you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that, grab one of us pastor elders after. Myself, Pastor Lou, Pastor Chris, Pastor Bill. We want, to ex- we want you to experience freedom in Christ. To take that burden off of you. I'm sure there's those of you here this morning who profess Christ as Lord and Savior, but still struggle with this need to earn God's love. This perpetual cycle of, of just guilt, feeling like I'm not secure. I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. It's true, you're not. But in Christ you are. In ourselves, I'm not good enough. Not even close. By a long shot, not Good enough. But in Christ, I know it's His righteousness, not my own. So don't let the voices of false brothers heap a burden on you that God never intended you to bear. If you are in Christ, you are in His secure hands. So may God's word this morning give you that peace. You're free from that burden. You are free to share your hope with others. To live in a life marked by Christ's accomplished work. To join in on mission united with others who have been redeemed by Christ's work. And it's for His glory alone that we preach it and we demonstrate and declare it. Let's pray together. Father, what freedom... There is to know that our hope is not in what we do, but what Christ has done. It is so easy to fall back into bondage, to fall back into slavery. I'm just trying to earn your favor, trying to earn merit, trying to earn our way to you. We know it's already been earned through Christ's work. Help us to repent of that mentality to rest in Jesus' finished work. We ask that your Spirit would be at work in us, shaping us to look more like Jesus. That we would display that in our lives, in our words, in our actions. Father, that the world would, would see your grace in us, not for our glory, but for yours, that we would point them to the Savior. There's nowhere else to turn. We ask that, you would, that we would continually just turn to you, remembering our freedom, our hope, our peace, our joy. That we are a part of your family because of all that Christ has done. We praise you. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.